0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rickrow.
1: And I'm Sophia Simonello.
0: And welcome back to another episode. We'll be returning to the Big Apple this week on a fun discussion of two New York movies. So we'll be talking about one of our favorite horror films, Rosemary's Baby, and a 70s mood classic, Saturday Night Fever.
1: I'm really excited to be returning to this theme. We love New York movies. So in our first New York movies episode, we talked about two Best Picture winners, Annie Hall and Kramer vs. Kramer. And today we're digging into acting nominees. You know, the fall, I think, is the best time of year in New York, and it's starting to turn over, I think. We're starting to finally transition seasons a little bit. I'm ready to embrace the fall. And Mm -hmm. Rosemary's Baby, for sure, I think is a good Halloween
0: movie. It's a good Halloween movie. I was going to say, these are more summer movies. They give Mm -hmm. a very hot vibe. Yeah. Which, like, temperature-wise, I think Saturday Night Fever, we can talk about, like, a different kind of hotness, but...
1: I mean, Rosemary's Baby, too. I'm going to go into that, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because we spend a very quick nine months with Rosemary. So we kind of go through the seasons, but also not really. So it's interesting how they capture time there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Brooklyn, summer, hot, sweaty dance floor, that's very much the latter.
1: For sure. And I, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the, the fashion in both of these, because I think that's also something that's really essential to a good, good New York movie. Mm-hmm. So Let's get started with Rosemary's Baby from 1968. Description here, a young couple trying for a baby moves into an aging, ornate apartment building on Central Park West, where they find themselves surrounded by peculiar neighbors. This was directed by Roman Polanski and stars Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, and more. This won one Oscar. Best Supporting Actress for Ruth Gordon and was also nominated for Adapted Screenplay. This is based on the novel by Ira Levin. It also was nominated at the Golden Globes, where Ruth Gordon won Supporting Actress, and the film also received nominations for Mia Farrow for Actress, Screenplay, and Original Score. I'm so sad that Mia Farrow was nominated for a Globe and a BAFTA, but didn't get an Mm -hmm. Oscar nomination. We will definitely talk about that, I think, as we get more into the movie. But what are your thoughts on Rosemary's Baby?
0: I literally wrote up this outline, and I'm still shocked reading this back and saying, wait, Mia Farrow didn't get nominated? How did this not get more nominations?
1: I know. It's it's really, really a tragedy, specifically that she didn't get nominated because she is the heart of the movie, and she was never nominated, period. Insane. In all of Oscar history. So yeah, it's it's one that stings, I think, especially when you think about the quality of work that she's putting into this movie as Rosemary. It is a very challenging part. The degree of difficulty on this role, I think, is just sky high, really.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting looking at pre-production first, just the other actress choices and the state that Mia Farrow was in at the time. So First off, they considered Sharon Tate and Jane Fonda before Mia. Completely different movie if it's not Mia.
1: But also if it's Sharon Tate, my God. Mm -hmm. That's a whole rabbit hole we can go down.
0: But yeah, if it were Jane, we wouldn't have Rosemary's baby. This comes out the same year as Barbarella. I feel like she would just murder everybody and the movie's over.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the thing about Rosemary is she has to be so innocent, so vulnerable, so trusting... And Jane has a spikiness to her in a similar way to Faye Dunaway, like we talked about on those episodes earlier this season, where I don't know if it's necessarily believable that she would trust everyone around her and, you know, fall victim to what this horrible cult is doing to her.
0: Mm-hmm. There's even an actress, I believe later on it's one of the older adults, and it looks like Joan Crawford. And I was like, Even she couldn't do this.
1: It's such a specific type of of character. And for John Cassavetes, too, as Guy Woodhouse, Mm -hmm. they were initially considering Jack Nicholson for him. Mm -hmm. But Polanski thought he was wrong for the part and had a a roguish air to him. That was the quote that I read. And I think that's 100% right. I love Nicholson, but I also don't think he's right for the part. I think he would instantly know what he was up to, maybe. And with Cassavetes, that's also a really tricky part, and I think he does a phenomenal job. He's so scary. Mm -hmm. He's scarier than Satan, I think. He's like the villain of the movie for me when I watch it.
0: I think that's why I have trouble revisiting it, because I am so horrified by this experience, because they make it feel like it could actually happen. Another choice for a guy was Robert Redford, and... He's almost Ooh. too pretty and too handsome to play that part. I think it could work, but I think with John, but I think John is perfect too because you can almost see like an evilness behind his face. So he plays this double-sided character really well. And again, you believe it to a point that you are scared. Like yes. you will have nightmares after this movie because of how all of these characters act and interact together. Like Ruth Gordon, just hands down, just a wonderful performance. But I think, yeah, we should be applauding everyone here, especially Mia, for setting the stage for this, again, it's like psychological thriller, horror. It plays with genres really well, too.
1: Mm -hmm. on Robert Redford for a second just getting into that I feel like Robert Redford would have been it would have been such an interesting choice like to consider you know what would his career have looked like if he would have taken Rosemary's baby but I think when you're talking about like a darkness behind the character it's an age-old trope that we've seen right in fairy tales and in literature and film forever but I think that the character has to have dark hair. Being a blonde, it just wouldn't wouldn't really fit. And I also think it wouldn't be believable in the same way that Mike Nichols said, absolutely not. You are not playing Benjamin Braddock in The Graduate. Have you ever had trouble getting a woman? No way. I think it would be unbelievable that Redford would struggle to find work as an actor. <laughs> because he's yeah. so pretty. John Cassavetes as Guy Woodhouse, he looks like a guy you've seen before in New York. Mm
0: -hmm. He has a much more hardened exterior where we talked about Redford earlier this year with The Sting, and I feel like he could play a burglar. He can, you know, work the casino, but I don't Mm -hmm. see him as a satanic cult follower.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Who falls into it so easily? I mean, this, this movie, to put it bluntly, is the reason why I do not date men who are actors period. Like, it is It is the reason why. I watched it when I was younger, and I said, no, this is just not an area of my life that I'm going to get into, because a lot of creative people, in general, will do anything for a part, or to be famous, or to get that sort of stardom. And I like that this movie also plays with that, and like, what would you Mm -hmm. do for fame, or for the career that you want? And for him, it's anything. I mean, he doesn't have any sort of scruples or morals at all when it comes to this. There's a really good line near the end of the film that I'll get to when we talk about the ending that is, I think, kind of the thesis of the Guy Woodhouse character that just sends shivers down my spine every time I hear
0: it. I think he's so important, too, because I think he's the last person for me Mm -hmm. that I realize is in on it. And once she figures out that he is, it's just this snowball that continues to grow until the end. And that's when it really clicks is, holy crap, even he has been manipulating, gaslighting her
1: Mm -hmm.
0: for the past nine months.
1: Yes. So I think just to go back to the beginning a little bit, This is my favorite horror movie of all time. I think it's absolutely flawless, and the reasons why I like it we'll get into throughout the episode, but I think what you said, you said something that is so accurate, which is that it feels very real, and this movie is set in the 60s, came out in 1968, but this same story could come out today in 2023, and you would say, yeah, nothing has changed and those sorts of horror stories that don't rely on gore, they don't rely on jump scares, they don't rely on supernatural elements. They're completely timeless and that's what I love about this movie. You can watch it in any time period and be riveted and horrified by it and the fact that nothing has changed when it comes to the ways that pregnant women are treated and mm-hmm. the ways that people manipulate people are, who are pregnant and don't believe them when they're saying they're in pain or going through something like what Rosemary is going through. That is still the case today. And you know, it's I think it is important that This movie, it's about the devil and it's about witches and it's about things that could, in another horror movie by a director who isn't Polanski, they could rely on things that we see in fairly typical horror movies. We could actually see a lot of violence. We could get those jump scares. But Polanski didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in the devil. And he didn't want to make this a supernatural film. He wanted to make it a film that was about everyday horror that people experience. And that is why it's so successful for me. So I'm so excited we're covering it. I love this movie dearly. I rewatch it all the time and always have nightmares afterwards and can't sleep because it just it gets under my skin so much.
0: And I think an aspect that you've hit on that is so crucial is Polanski's direction. This was his American feature debut. Mm -hmm. So he brought over a lot of those European qualities to filmmaking. And that is what makes it so dreadful watching this is that it's very droll. There's no huge climax. It's showing you almost everyday life. These elderly neighbors who come over all the time and offer you food and drink and just want to have a dinner together. (laughs) (laughs) I love the beginning too with the aerials of New York and eventually seeing the building.
1: Okay, really quick on that. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about this movie, one, the font, the pink (laughs) titles are immaculate, but there's a really important shot that Polanski incorporates, which is that we get a God's eye shot, of Rosemary and Guy walking into mm-hmm. the building, which is the world-famous Dakota where John Lennon was shot. So the building has a lot of history, too. But the film actually ends with that same shot.
0: Mm-hmm. Their are
1: bookends. So it creates this really strange circular structure where you feel like this couple is trapped in this building, like they're little dolls in a dollhouse or something. And there's some greater force, whether Polanski believes in it or not, that has control over what they're experiencing inside,
0: yeah. It makes you question what happens in the movie and where they are before and afterwards. It's infuriating. We can talk more again about the ending in a second, just to see where Rosemary Mia's character ends up and what she's mm-hmm. gone through and where she still is at the end. But especially the whole transformation you know, you see her basically eating raw meat at one point and she thinks she's fine she's just like a little sick and she's as pale as you know a white bedsheet. Mm-hmm. and she doesn't think anything of it because the doctor said she's fine <laughs> like oh. girl go to a different doctor and I
1: know oh. the other
0: horrifying part about that is with Dr. Hill in the end and her going to him confiding in him and then <laughs> still <laughs> it not working out but I mentioned earlier two points about Mia. The other was that she was married to Frank Sinatra at the time. A horrifying marriage gone wrong because during this shoot, Sinatra presents her with divorce papers and she wants to leave the shoot. He like didn't want her to take the movie in the first place, so she wants to leave. But Robert Evans convinced her to stay by showing her a rough cut of what they had filmed so far and saying she would get an Oscar nomination which she should have, and she stayed and finished the movie, obviously. But to have that real-world horror happening behind Mm -hmm. her eyes, basically, while she has to portray this similar character on screen, had to have been just an awful nightmare.
1: Yeah, it really, really did. And Evans really is the key to the success of Rosemary's Baby because he put all of his faith in Polanski, he let him go over budget. He let the shoot go long. He mm-hmm. kind of let him run with it and trusted him that this adaptation could be really risky and could bring those European qualities into American cinema. And they were both right. They, the gamble that they took with this movie totally paid off. I mean, this was a box office hit. And Mm -hmm. in my head, I always think, oh, this is a 70s movie. It feels kind of like that new Hollywood. But the fact that this is made in the 60s, it really is, I think, ahead of its time in what it's doing for American film. And that's why it's why it's so important.
0: Yeah, it does have those vibes from 60s movies and 70s Mm -hmm. movies. I think this really does usher in that new generation of 70s movies really well. Again, it's just the realism of it and how the story is being captured. It leads to a lot of insight and conversation that a lot of 70s movies do. And I think this is a trait too that will play into Saturday Night Fever. Similarly, again, just like a movie of its time. So besides the main apartment location, what makes this a New York movie or why do you like this as a New York movie?
1: Yeah, so I think with the Dakota and with that apartment specifically, it asks a question that I think a lot of people in New York ask themselves, which is like, what would you do for a great apartment? Or what are the red flags of an apartment? And, you know, does it really matter to you if you really are desperate to find a place to live? So, for example, I wrote down when I was watching this movie, I would absolutely move there in a heartbeat. If I was looking at this building and saw this huge, beautiful apartment, mm-hmm. even after hearing about witches and the Trench Sisters and Adrian Mercado and everything, I would I would move there because it's gorgeous and the location is great. So I think that that really contributes to kind of the, the New York attitude around living mm-hmm. and apartment hunting. I think it's perfect that it actually opens with them looking at the apartment. I also think that the idea of being terrified in a building where you live with other people is so New York. So many horror movies take place, you know, in in rural settings or in a haunted house or they take place in standalone homes, not in apartment buildings. But the idea of creating this very claustrophobic apartment film is something that Polanski is so good at how close you are with your neighbors, how you know these strangers and effectively can hear them through a wall. I mean, Mm -hmm. we hear our neighbors when we're recording all the time. God. That's just like something. Tell me about it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Something you experience living here and there's this normalcy around it that I think doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily exist in other places. And that makes it scary. I think keeping it in the, the claustrophobic location is really is something that Polanski's so good at, but also it just makes the movie so much scarier. And then when she ventures outside into the city and we see these, you know, hallmarks of the city, like Radio City Music Hall, this city somehow feels so much scarier than if she were anywhere else. All these people are around her and she can't trust anyone. She has no idea who she can who she can go to and she's just so desperate for anyone. And Mm -hmm. it's this alone in a crowded room feeling that Polanski and Farrow add to the movie. That's so
0: smart. I'm kind of surprised they didn't go on the subway. I feel like that would have added Mm -hmm. another like claustrophobic, very scary element that a lot of New York movies do. Midnight Me Train like comes to mind, but...
1: (laughs) That great scene in The French Connection that Mm -hmm. uses the subway so well. Yeah, it's a staple of a lot of New York movies. But also some other ones, they don't use it when their characters are uptown people. Like Annie Hall, we never go on the train. <laughs> this one, we don't go on the train. I wonder if it's kind of just where you, where you live in the city and how far you're willing to go. I guess
0: so. Yeah, being on the Upper West Side, I mean, they don't go far at all. They go around Radio City to shop, but for them, it's like one express stop. So it's yeah. really, they don't really have to go far. I mean, and she got a cab everywhere, too, which mm-hmm. I think to that, it shows either where they are or where they want to be in society, too. Mm-hmm. This upper echelon where you don't go on the subway. I feel like that's a thing of wealthier people in the city, too, is we only take cabs or, yeah, I don't know, it's giving, like, sex in the city, too.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, the types of New York movies where we see the subway... We will talk about it with Saturday Night Fever because they show the train, I think, fairly frequently mm-hmm. in the movie, and it even opens with one of the above ground trains. Mm-hmm.
0: I think another quality to the film that really makes this a New York movie is just the mindset that you get in. Like you talked about the neighbors and the building living around so many people, but another sequence I like that really captures this is when she walks into traffic, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, maybe could take place in LA but I think it would just have a very different feel if it was set there I know a lot of it was shot there but
1: but people don't walk in LA <laughs> so you I, can't walk yeah, into traffic. they
0: just always be in cars <laughs> I feel yeah. like it would change again the movie but her walking into traffic and this was real like Polanski told her to do this and he was like you're pregnant nobody's gonna hit a pregnant woman So he walked into traffic with her to shoot this sequence because nobody else would. And it's just not only the scene itself and like that fact of them actually doing this, but that claustrophobia, that high intensity, lots of Mm -hmm. traffic, you know, the honking, the noise, just all of that wrapped into one moment is very much New York. And I think he's doing that throughout the film in various ways. A lot of it indoors, But being around people is this constant, sometimes joy, but also fear in the city.
1: Right. It's that idea that, oh, I'm around so many people, so I'm going to be safe. Like if something happens to me, someone will see it. Right. But it goes into the other side of that fear, which Mm -hmm. is too many people are around me. Anyone could harm me. Anyone could be against me. I have no idea who I can count on. And that is what's so scary. And I love when she goes to the phone booth near the end when she's just like desperate. And he keeps that camera inside the phone booth with her. Mm -hmm. And it's just so tight and closed in. Oh, so scary.
0: But yeah, their use of the camera, Polanski with the DP, William Fraker, a lot of close ups. It's where the camera is placed to seem like we're watching her in this eerie way, like these people... Are watching her all around her. And it just gives this state of surveillance that she's always being watched. And mm-hmm. I mean, that happens later on, you know, after she has the baby, she's in her room, these other people are always watching her. And they're mm-hmm. making sure she's taking her pills and staying in bed and not being a nuisance or a problem so that they can raise this baby, which just adds to the idea of motherhood and how this movie turns that on its head because of Mm -hmm. her experience.
1: Absolutely. So what are some of your favorite scenes in the movie? I think we can just go through some of our favorite moments throughout the film. Mm
0: -hmm. We've kind of hit on this, but when they first go to the apartment, they see it. The moment that really sticks with me, apart from like the big moments in the film, the ending is when they see the dresser in front of the door and the (laughs) landlord or the super. He's like, what is that doing there? And she goes, oh, it looks like she turned it. And it's like, this was here for a reason. Don't move it. Mm -hmm. And if you move into this apartment, like, I guess I would consider it, especially for the location and if it was cheap enough. But I would never use that closet. I'd be like, well, that's just some wasted space because yeah, (laughs) it's so scary. (laughs) It's so scary. (laughs) Because you... You realize that, you know, it's there, and then you're waiting, Mm -hmm. and then in the very end, you find out why. And it's like, oh my god, it's just awful. It's awful.
1: So this is brilliant for a number of reasons, but I agree with you. I think this is one of the scariest shots in the movie, maybe the scariest, because of where they put the camera to. Like, it's centered and just far enough away where you can see Just how massive, right, this wardrobe Mm -hmm. is in front of the closet. It's almost floor to ceiling. (laughs) And that would be the thing where if I were looking at this apartment where I would say, okay, something is wrong here. Mm -hmm. Like there's a serious issue if there's, you know, if they're blocking a closet in New York. Right. please yeah you don't you don't block your closets. you're lucky to have one. So that though why the script is also so smart is because Polanski what he does is he incorporates these little details that you think you'll never come back to, but you always do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ambiguity that he also ties things up in the perfect way. And in this scene, Rosemary says like why would she cover her vacuum cleaner and her towels? And the landlord or the agent like who's showing them the apartment says, I don't suppose we'll ever know. And those little things like that where you're like, oh, we're not going to know this because it's this woman who went into a coma and died. We can't know why she did something, but we do know by the end why Mm -hmm. that closet was covered. It's so scary.
0: And you're right. Every single detail, like when she goes in the basement to do laundry, she meets this seemingly random woman, right? No, it's like she was living with them next door. She had that same little necklace with the Tannis root and they killed her. And so every little thing is done to support the story and to further the character's arc.
1: It's a slow burn, but there's, there's zero mm-hmm. fat on the screenplay. It's pristine to me. I also love how that necklace comes back in. I actually have a replica of it that one of my friends got me for my birthday. I wear it around (laughs) Halloween. I don't put any fungus inside of it. So it's just, you know, just the the cute little silver necklace. (laughs) But yeah, I love how that comes back in the shot of Rosemary holding it up and looking at it. Like studying Mm -hmm. it is really, really beautiful. And I love the way. So. On the subject of Terry, the woman who she meets in the laundry room, which is also a terrifying laundry room. I would never go down there alone to that basement. No, it's like Silence of the Lambs down there. (laughs) (laughs) But I love how we're introduced to Roman and Minnie Castavet. There's something so unsettling about the way that they dress that is so smart and... It was also Polanski's idea that he shared with the costume designer that they wear bright colors because you never suspect loud people in movies like this. You always suspect the quieter, the shifty characters. You never expect Mm -hmm. the people who are out there front and center to be the evil ones. And I mean, the, the way that Minnie does her makeup and it's just, it's crazy. Like the blue eyeshadow and the lip color and her blush, it's so unexpected and it's so, so unsettling. And he does this, Polanski does this in Chinatown too with Noah Cross, the John Huston character. He has him wearing whites and beige. And it's that kind of like inner darkness disguised by brightness on the outside, which I think is just so smart mm-hmm. and one of my favorite touches. But just the idea of having nosy neighbors, there's a line that Guy says, and he says, We get friendly with an old couple like that, we'll never get rid of them. And he says it kind of flippantly, like you would Mm. about nosy neighbors or if you have neighbors like them. But in reality, they can't ever get rid of them because they have a child for them. So they're always kind of going to be stuck in their little coven, their little web.
0: Continuing with the apartment scenes, I love when they finally move in. There's no furniture. They're eating on the ground. And then they Mm -hmm. have sex. And it's done so methodically. Like, asking each other and then taking their clothes off separately. It's just, there's a distance to it that, again, adds to this eeriness. But once they move in, there's a lot of eating happening in the apartment. But they have this dinner. They eat the quote-unquote chocolate mouse. Which also, (laughs) like, why are they letting the neighbors cook all their food and give them all of this stuff? Like, if it tastes chalky, don't eat it.
1: Yeah, that's when I always first see that guy something is wrong with guy like the way he talks to her in that moment when she's like, she says there's a there's an undertaste here to this. Mm -hmm. And he turns it on her and makes it seem like she's the difficult one. And she's always the one who complains and he completely guilts her into eating it. And Mm -hmm. that's just oh, it's one of the earliest instances of his behavior and how he manipulates Mm -hmm. her. It's something that I would also kind of expect if I had neighbors like that.
0: And then this scene continues. This is when she is raped and has this like dream like sequence of going in and out of seeing the devil and having these people tie her up. It's spooky and how they shift from showing Rosemary to the other people controlling Mm -hmm. the situation, which is incredible because like we see them talking and they're like, oh, her eyes are open. Can she see us? And they're like, no, she can't see anything. Just keep going. <sighs> and they tie up her legs with bed sheets, And it's awful to watch this. And then you see the hand transform into the devil. And those shots, again, just these close ups that make you feel like you're in that room with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene is so scary. The shot of guy carrying her down the hall Mm -hmm. just like he like flings her over his shoulder it's like she's so powerless and vulnerable and this is a person she's supposed to be able to trust and earlier on in the film I think there is sort of an ease to their relationship with each other like there's banter back and forth they're like a cute couple moving into this place and all of a sudden it just takes this really dark turn and the really scary part too about that scene is that the next morning when she has all those scratches over her and she's kind of trying to confront him about everything and like ask him Mm -hmm. why couldn't it have waited or you know and he says it was kind of fun in a necrophile way I thought you need to leave this man oh my god he is so gross
0: it's like her falling over knocking Mm -hmm. over the chair means Mm -hmm. that they should go to bed and then she's like why are you taking my clothes off? And he's like, oh, I'm just making you more comfortable. It's just, everything is slimy about this scene. It's so scary.
1: I love her outfit, though. I do have to say that. The red (laughs) two-piece set she's wearing, those Mm -hmm. pants and the top. It's one of my favorite looks of hers in the movie. And, you know, going off of that scene, too, like, it's so tragic when she finds out that she's pregnant because there's this juxtaposition of her happiness In that moment with what we know, which is how this baby was conceived, that Mm -hmm. she was raped, that, you know, it was this horrible, like, violent experience, even though she's so excited to be pregnant. But there's also this bit of fear when she looks at herself in the mirror and she says, you're pregnant. And there are little moments, too, where she says, like, she asks her her due date on the phone and she says, that sounds so far away. And it's just like, ugh. Moments like that just make me want to cry because you know what's coming for her and that it can't be good and that mm-hmm. it's just kind of tinged with evil. But that type of fear is interesting because Polanski and Mia Farrow, I think really well, they're playing with the type of fear that pregnant women have, which is that it's very normal to be afraid and to be scared and to be anxious about carrying a baby, right? Like that's that's something that... Is, it's very normal to be afraid of that. But mm-hmm. when you take it a step further, she actually has even deeper, darker reasons to be afraid. And I think she knows that subconsciously. But the fact that we know it makes it so much harder to
0: watch. Mm-hmm. And then you add in other characters, other elements like her going to the doctor, taking blood, which is normal, but then mm-hmm. having them call her and say, congratulations, you're pregnant but we need more blood yeah. just to test your blood sugar. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't second guess those things because you don't know, but there's still something that you want to question, but you won't let yourself. And that's one of the most frustrating parts of Rosemary's character is that she goes along with everything because she's being convinced that this is normal.
1: Yeah. And you, you can't blame her for that right like if you yeah. if you're not a medical professional there are things that you just won't know and it makes sense to trust a doctor and for all of these people who are being so willing to help her it's worth noting also she's from the midwest moves to new york so she probably has just <laughs> this like she's used to people being nice to her yes i don't know um <laughs> but i don't know and it's sad too because she does have one ally right hutch this friend of hers, and even he becomes, like, totally compromised, because when he's talking to her, and he's saying, like, you need to, you need to go to another doctor, like, you're not pregnant, pregnant women gain weight, they don't lose weight, you know, what's, what's going on here, and he recognizes that she needs help, but Roman Castavets, I mean, if you watch that scene, again and you see how he's glaring at him he's studying him and he knows that he's a threat to Mm -hmm. their operation it's just so scary and I think what the film does that's so cruel is that it incorporates moments of hope for Rosemary when Hutch is there for her and starts to figure some of it out but then of course that's taken away from her or when she starts to dump the drink that Minnie is making for her down the drain or when they had and it transitions into that party where they finally have people from the outside world their friends there and all of the women gather around her and they won't let Guy in I don't know it's like those moments when people are believing her or you feel like she finally might be on to something or might have a leg up and then it's just there's something that rips it out from under her where you realize that she doesn't have any power whatsoever in this Mm -hmm. situation even though she's the one who's carrying the child but she's effectively to them a vessel that's it and i agree with you about the frustration because when i watch this movie i'm always yelling at the tv yeah why are you telling them anything especially your (laughs) husband just stop you need to not Uh. tell him anything because he's evil he looks great But he's evil.
0: I mean, that's what's so dangerous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. You're like, oh, wow, no, I could totally fall for this, too, if in the wrong circumstance. (laughs) Another one of my favorite moments that kind of that goes along with Hutch and Rosemary discovering things is that he gives her that book called All of Them Witches. And the fact that she takes out the Scrabble tiles to decode the anagram is so smart, Like writing it on a piece of paper or something just wouldn't be as cinematic, but moving those tiles around and how Polanski keeps the camera so close is so smart. And I think that the effect of the score in this movie is also perfect because he lets the movie have so many silent moments when necessary, where you're just hearing characters talk And even if they're revealing something important, there isn't this swell of horrifying Mm -hmm. music or anything like that. It's just quiet. It's just how it would sound in an apartment. But when the score is used, it's really scary. Mm -hmm. And this moment is one of those when you have that reveal that Roman Castavet is an anagram for Stephen Mercado. And that there are all these witches, all of them witches rather, are controlling everything. For poor Rosemary.
0: Mm-hmm. Another sign is you getting this book from your dear friend, and then your husband throwing it away.
1: Oh my god! Like I know. Did that make you think of another movie though that I think is very Polanski inspired?
0: The book.
1: It made me smile really big.
0: No, what movie?
1: Okay, so in Tar, when um, <laughs> Krista Taylor leaves the challenge by Vita Sackville-West at the front. And oh. Lydia starts to try to make anagrams out of
0: Oh yeah. Krista
1: Taylor to be, like, at risk. Oh and then she gosh. throws the book away in the airplane bathroom. <laughs> I was like, ooh, this is Rosemary's baby. Yes. That
0: is a good connection. Wow.
1: And that movie's so good with claustrophobic interiors, too, and just apartment living. That spooky woman mm-hmm. who lives across the hall from her who we really don't know much about.
0: Yeah. Ooh. So I guess let's talk about the ending, Mm -hmm. which is really like a 30 minute sequence again, because once it starts, it just keeps going and going and going. So this like includes the phone booth scene where she had just come from Dr. Saperstein's office, finds out that Dr. Saperstein through his receptionist also smelled like tannis root or that fungus and everything in that moment clicks that. He's in on it too, so she leaves, goes to the phone booth, and I just love it so much because of that static camera, like you mentioned, but that this man comes and stands in front of the door Ugh. and you're it really does look like Dr. Saperstein mm-hmm. and you just think it's all over. And he turns around and it's not him. It's just probably one of the scariest shots and nothing happens. It's so scary.
1: It's so (laughs) scary. And the way that the camera lingers on certain faces Mm -hmm. is so scary. Often from profile, he really likes that, I think, to shoot like profile close up or at just different unexpected angles. Mm -hmm. Like all the people in the apartment building, the man at the phone booth, it creates a sense of terror that I think you miss if you're not that skilled with the camera.
0: Yeah. And he just relies on all of his actors. Even though later on we have a scene with a knife and I really want her to use it, there's no gore in this movie. There are no big effects. Again, we talked about seeing the Mm -hmm. devil before, but I'm assuming those are all prosthetics. Like that is an actual getup. So it just works. Like obviously the modern day comparison to this is hereditary and that does include some gore and different elements that I think works in a totally different way. And I love that the ending here is like, hail Adrian, hail Satan. And then we have like hail Payman" from hereditary. So lots of, lots of similarities. So then Rosemary goes to Dr. Hill. This whole scene happens again. It's just so heartbreaking. Once you see Dr. Saperstein come in that room, when she wakes up from her nap, again, you know, it's all over. They're like, let's go home. They take her home, and then she's under, like, major surveillance from her husband, from the doctor, from her neighbors.
1: What about the moment, though, where, okay, it's really scary, though, when she, like, hops off the elevator and is trying to get Mm -hmm. in the suspense there, and she's trying to be in her apartment. Oh, my God, though, the scariest part is when she's, you see her, and she's facing the camera, and there are two men who just walk by. In the apartment after she's deadbolted it and chained the door. (laughs) And you're like, how did they get in there? It's so scary.
0: I love when she's fumbling with her keys to get back in the apartment. And the camera pans from the elevator door. You see guy coming out. And then she gets into the apartment. Great editing. Because I don't think it worked out timing-wise that she would have made it in. But, yeah, (laughs) once she's in and you see her on the phone (laughs) and they... The two men just quietly step behind her. I actually screamed. I (laughs) forgot about so many parts in this movie. It's just, it's so smart. You look away and you don't see it because there's no music behind it either. Mm -hmm. It's just the realization that she's not alone. And when she hears the floorboards creak, yeah. So then my other favorite moment, also an iconic look, is the blue gown. Not only like showing off her naivete, but... Again, that pastel, it goes really well with the wallpaper. I love that in the beginning when Mm -hmm. they like do the whole apartment up. Very 60s. But yeah, having that nightgown on and holding this huge knife, it's a beautiful shot. And then she hides and eventually goes through the closet and finds this really gothic looking apartment.
1: It's beautiful. I do love it. <laughs> I know it's supposed to be scary, but I love it. How dark and baroque mm-hmm. it looks. Oh, very into it. Good job decorating. Oh Castavetes.
0: yeah. I mean, she pushes open the door. I love the shot through the lock hole too. But she oh, opens yeah. the door, mm-hmm. and you just see this fresco on the right wall of this city in flames, or whatever it is. But it's just. I mean, obviously, the horror of opening the door to this apartment, like again, it's that realization of knowing something was going to happen there, but the horror of the design of the apartment too. And again, it's that emotionless filmmaking almost when she walks in and certain people just start to turn and see her.
1: And they barely react at first. Yes, There are some screams, but the fact that people see her and don't do anything is so unsettling to me every time. I'm like. Yep. Oh this is actually evil. There's evil in this room. There's evil in this this movie that's been created. And those little moments too where there there's humor in it too, which I think is oh, yeah. so smart. Like I think this movie's funny at times. Like it's very sad, it's very scary, but one of the funniest moments to me is when she drops the knife on the floor and it sticks up in their floorboards. And uh, Minnie takes it out and she kind of like rubs the mark
0: like (laughs) she doesn't want
1: the wood to get scuffed from the knife. (laughs) Nothing phases her Mm -hmm. at this point. You talked about the costumes, too, and the interiors. This movie is so detailed. And I think that the production design is brilliant. The contrast between their two apartments, how there are a lot of colors that you associate with babies or with children, with innocence, like you said, Mm -hmm. in... The Woodhouse apartment. There's a ton of yellow, white, the light blue that she wears, and then the Castavet apartment is all dark. What you would expect from devil worshippers, not the pastel clothing that they typically wear when they're venturing into the outside world. One of the things that Polanski says about this movie that I read in The Big Goodbye, the book that I reference constantly, the Sam Wasson book about Chinatown. That talks a little bit about Rosemary's Baby is that Polanski throughout the movie they wanted to showcase the changing trends of the sixties. So her short her skirt gets shorter as the movie progresses because that was the style. So she also was like very much a part of that time. And that's I that's something I really love. In addition to her haircut, which is also iconic mm-hmm. when she says, I've been to Vidal Sassoon, <laughs> just that really, really <laughs> short haircut. And It just makes her look even more thin and malnourished than before. But it's, yeah, it's an iconic haircut for a reason.
0: And you talked about comedy. The woman that screams in the end. I love the scene when Rosemary wakes up and she's knitting or reading. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But Rosemary says something and she shrieks so loud because she's startled. Just this subtle comedy that works in this space because of how confused I think your emotions are as you continue through this movie.
1: And with that character too, I always laugh when she's really rocking that crib. Like she is like shaking it. Like she's she's on a rowing machine or something. Like she is really going Mm -hmm. to town on that crib. It's so funny. But the brilliance of the ending also, number one, having that crib with the black canopy Mm. and the cross hanging upside down like a mobile for the baby Mm -hmm. to play with is so scary but the fact that they do not show baby adrian yeah perfection we don't need to see him we know he's scary based on the comment that he has his father's eyes and mia farrow's face when she sees him that's all that's all you need to know like the, the movie relies on her reaction to effectively communicate what this baby looks like Mm -hmm. but the fact that she goes over and rocks him anyway genius i think it's the perfect way to end the movie and the quote that i mentioned that guy says that always i think is again the thesis to his character and a comment again on how the world views pregnant women and their experiences is he says they promised me you wouldn't get hurt and you haven't been really like he's completely ignoring all of the pain and the hurt, not just physically but mentally and emotionally, to mm-hmm. bring this this thing into the world for these other people. It's another layer of darkness on the film for sure that always sticks with me.
0: I think if the movie had ended differently and Rosemary didn't accept this new reality, I almost feel like it wouldn't be as much of a classic today mm-hmm. because I think. The fact that you want to shake her in the end and seeing her motherly instincts take over when she mm-hmm. goes over to the crib and lightly smiles at the baby and knows that this is her life now, it adds another layer that this movie wouldn't have otherwise. And you mentioned the cyclical nature of the apartment shot at the very end. Yeah, it's just the perfect ending to this movie. Even though I want her to take the knife and kill the demon baby. They've used her so much Mm -hmm. that they're not going to hurt her. And that's also why it's so scary when you see their head slowly turn and them not doing anything is because they're not frightened by her even with a knife.
1: They know they don't need to be. That's the chilling part of it. And the fact too that when um, Roman Castava slash Steven Mercado, when he says like, no, let Rosemary rock him. Like, he knows that once she starts doing that, once she starts taking care of the baby, Uh, everything will be fine.
0: So, do you think anything was snubbed from this movie?
1: Yes. I think (laughs) quite a few things were snubbed here. (laughs) Just yes, in general. So, I would have given this. Let's go to these Oscars quickly. So the 68 Oscars, Oliver won Best Picture, and we also had Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, and Romeo and Juliet. I would have given this a picture win. I would have given Polanski a director nomination, Stanley Kubrick, also there for 2001 as Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. but that didn't get in for picture. It always tells you, like, the classics years later, a lot of times they're nowhere to be found when it comes to the Oscars. I love Ruth Gordon's win. I would have nominated Mia Farrow. This was the year that Katharine Hepburn and Barbara Streisand tied for Best Actress. But as much as I love Katherine Hepburn's win in The Lion of Winter, it is my favorite of her wins. I would have given this to Mia Farrow. I think you also could nominate John Cassavetes in Supporting Actor. I think he's great in this movie. I love him as guy. Oh my gosh. Other snubs. I just, I feel like there are so many. I would have nominated it for Score costume design, art direction, cinematography, and editing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would have given it like a full proper haul.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there's so many iconic elements to the movie and it doesn't work without all of those components. I definitely Mm -hmm. think cinematography too, art direction. Again, it's just the design, that feel of that apartment, which so many other movies since and even before this have been nominated for. Mm -hmm. And I agree with costume design We had just so many design heavy movies this year or period pieces that I think just took over, and that's why.
1: Yeah. So, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
0: I think it would be Best Actress for Mia Farrow. That's
1: a good answer. Like
0: I mentioned earlier, it doesn't work with any other big actresses from the time. She has that right amount of eagerness and playfulness that you buy into very quickly. And I think the screenplay is really important and great too. But I think she just delivers the most chilling performance that really secures this as one of the best horror movies. What would you give it?
1: Ugh, it's so hard. I mean, there are so many, so many Oscars that I would give it, but I never do this. I'm giving it best picture. I'm giving it the big one. I usually make myself pick another one. I love Ruth Gordon's win. I'm so happy this win exists in the supporting Mm -hmm. actress category. It is what the category is made for. Her win is one of my favorites in the category's history. I love Mia Farrow, the screenplay, the direction. I mean, there's so many things that I just love about the movie, but I think it really is a masterpiece, and I think it's, it's one of the best movies that's ever been made about motherhood. How suddenly you're pregnant and nothing is yours anymore, despite the fact that you are carrying something inside you, like there's something that's fully within you and yours. It's still not yours to the outside world and how like people touch you and they just see you as a vessel to bring something into the world that will become theirs and will belong to the rest of the world and will spend its entire life moving away from you. And that is, I think it's it's the perfect movie to dissect that idea. It's timeless, like I said. It is, it is just as relevant today in 2023 as doctors and people all around the world don't believe pregnant women when they tell them that something mm-hmm. is wrong. It's just a completely like, prescient film, and it's expertly made. And I would love to see another horror film win Best Picture. We have so few of them. So I think this would have been the perfect film of the year to do that.
0: Okay, let's move on to Saturday Night Fever from 1977. Description here. Anxious about his future after high school, a 19-year-old Italian-American from Brooklyn tries to escape the harsh reality of his bleak family life by dominating the dance floor at the local disco. This was directed by John Badham. It stars John Travolta, Karen Lynn Gorney, and Barry Miller. This was nominated for one Oscar for Actor for Travolta. At the Globe, similarly to Rosemary's Baby, this had more nominations. So it was up for Picture, Comedy or Musical, Actor for Travolta, Original Score, and Original Song for How Deep Is Your Love. And then it also had some other nominations from different ceremonies. The American Music Awards, it won for Soul R&B album because of the BGS, and then it was nominated for Favorite Pop Rock Album. I feel like we just mentioned four different genres of music.
1: <laughs> Maybe that explains why. I don't know.
0: I had so much love. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even mention disco in there, but also at the New York Film Critics Circle it had two nominations for Travolta and supporting actress for Donna Pesco. And then at NBR, it was one of the top 10 films winner and Travolta won actor there. So he had a lot of love. He's very young, very, very young, but commands this movie. And it's all about the Mm -hmm. dancing and the music and disco from the 70s. Do you like this movie?
1: I do like it, but I don't love it in the way that I think some people from the time do so like my mom loves this movie and loves John Travolta in this movie but she was also in high school when it came out so Mm -hmm. I think if you're from the time it completely makes sense as to why you would really love it for me there are a lot of nitpicks that I have just with certain things in the screenplay particularly the ending of the film Ugh, just it doesn't work for me personally and we can talk about that when we get to it but i think that john travolta is absolutely electric in this movie oh my god when he starts like when he's walking with the paint Mm -hmm. can i just i would have been obsessed with him but yeah i think that a lot of it is really strong and i do like being in the world of the movie i think it's It's definitely better as sort of a piece to capture what it was like living in a particular area at that time, like Bay Ridge and Brooklyn. But I think some of the choices that the script makes are really odd. I can't really answer a lot of the questions that I have about them, but not in a good way, like with some of my favorite very ambiguous movies, but more in a, why did they make that decision sort of way? And I understand why it's a classic, definitely, for the time.
0: Mm. I like one of our after dark questions. How is this movie aged? Is it a cult classic? <laughs> like, yeah. yes, I, I 100% agree with you in like understanding that it's this mood piece from the 70s. And it really does transport you from those first moments of seeing him strut down the street. And they show the Brooklyn Bridge and all of these sites of Brooklyn. And the music from staying alive to burn baby burn more than a woman just so many classic songs. Mm -hmm. But the amount of slurs, the racism, the misogyny, there is so much that does not age well from this movie. The rape scenes, it's just, I was aghast, jaw on the floor, just like, they filmed this? Crazy.
1: The rape scenes, I think, are another conversation altogether that we can definitely talk about. I think that When it comes to has this movie aged well or certain things like that, I understand incorporating certain things into a screenplay because that is how those people, those characters talked at the time to make it more authentic, to make it more believable. I completely understand that. But what's funny to me is that in the 70s, like if you go back and read reviews of the film or look at the reception, the rape scenes are not even mentioned. (laughs) Nobody... Nobody really cared. The 70s were a wild time. I'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) And I think with some films, it's more obvious that attitudes were completely different. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're looking at classics from the time, this one is one of the the darker ones. Because I think it has a reputation of being a really fun, free film. Mm -hmm. But it actually has a lot of darkness built into it. That I think is under-discussed. I feel like when people think of this movie, they rightfully think of the dancing. They think of John Travolta. They think of that Bee Gees soundtrack, which is, I think, one of the best movie soundtracks ever. The soundtrack of this movie is insanely good. But, yeah, the darker things I forgot about when I rewatched it, actually, this time. I forgot how the racism, the misogyny, the homophobia, the sexual assault... How that's all baked mm-hmm. into the screenplay, but is somewhat forgotten, I think, in the the ways that we talk about the movie now.
0: Mm-hmm. They show sex in different ways, but comparing it to Rosemary's Baby, when I mentioned it was like very methodical and broken down, and they don't show anything, to this, where he, they're watching their friends <laughs> have sex in the back of a car.
1: <laughs> I know. I was like, they walk where up to the are car, we? I'm like, go away. Go away. <laughs> Why are you watching this?
0: Let alone later when they're all in the car together driving. But,
1: oh oh my
0: God, it's just, you're right, a totally different time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's like, what's going on here? So what do you think makes this a New York movie?
0: New York is the perfect location for this movie because of the boroughs and what that means to Tony. So I think Brooklyn is perfect to start this movie and where it takes place it feels grittier like we've talked about on previous episodes on our other new york movie episode kind of like moonstruck too or dog day mm-hmm. afternoon but this idea of reaching manhattan and this better life and later when we meet stephanie you know that's where she works and and he wants to become her or have the life that she is living i think that aspiration of manhattan and what it means and just really the idea of like what new york means as a city and what it means for this country is perfect for the story and have you seen staying alive the like sequel to this no
1: i have not I have s- you
0: i started it it just it doesn't hit at all mm. but he's finally made it to manhattan i mean he's living there and he's trying to make it on broadway and failing as a dancer it's peak travolta like he is the uh, hottest he's ever been in the sequel. The second one? Yeah.
1: Okay, maybe I'm gonna at least look up let me I'll <laughs> I might carve some time out to watch this then because I think he's very hot in this one. So I can't imagine him looking better, really. You,
0: yeah. And you'll definitely agree that he is better in staying alive. There's a shot of him in a shower that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Adding this to my watch list as we speak. <laughs> Run
0: to Hoopla. It's on there. Yeah. And his hair is even bigger, I think. But he just looks more mature and it makes him look here a little naive and young, which is how the character I think should play, especially with all mm-hmm. the family dynamics and living at home and trying to be this macho guy who runs his friend group and everybody wants to be. It works here, but yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll agree when you see it
1: <laughs> Thank you I have something to look forward to for tonight.
0: I think it also so. in just describing it it's somewhere between in all that jazz and showgirls wanna be
1: Okay do we have a pool scene like showgirls?
0: I doubt it I doubt it <laughs> <laughs> but it opens like all that jazz.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. when you said he's trying to be a dancer, that's what I imagined mm-hmm. in my head was, oh, okay, is this movie trying to be all that yeah. jazz? And that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I think as far as New York goes to, I mean, you, I think you hit on all of the big things that I was thinking of, just the aspirational quality of the movie, the difference between Tony and Stephanie and how she lives in Manhattan and everything, but also the fact that it's set in Brooklyn It's such a clear illustration of that neighborhood and how he works in a paint store and how he goes and gets two slices of pizza and stacks them on top of each other and eats them together. The craziest scenes in the movie take place on the Verrazano Bridge, Mm -hmm. which is another key, I think, New York location. But the grit to it also makes it such a clear part of 70s New York And it's interesting that this and Annie Hall came out in the same year because Annie Hall, along with Manhattan, I think, which is a bit later, but in those movies, that version of New York, it's a more romantic version of the city, as opposed to the grit and the grime that we got used to with some of these movies like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and The French Connection, Saturday Night Fever. So yeah, I think it's interesting to view Annie Hall and Saturday Night Fever as a pair because they have such different depictions of life in New York City Mm -hmm. and access to it too, right? Like Annie's never been to Brooklyn. She says that in the movie and here they aspire to go to Manhattan.
0: Do you have any favorite scenes from the movie?
1: The opening of the movie is perfect. When he is walking... With that paint can to staying alive, it is like he's floating through the air. It's perfect. It's the best possible introduction to this character. He's beautiful. And just, like, you understand who that character is and his whole look, his aura, everything about him in just the opening. You know it's going to be his movie. This is his neighborhood. And... Then when you end up, you know, you see him at work and you see how he interacts with the women on the street and then you see him at home in his room. I think the film does a really good job of showing what type of life he has and how he's really not anything special in his day-to-day life. He is trying really hard to get a raise up to $4. He had no aspirations of going to college. He still lives at home. He's not the favorite child because he has a brother who's a priest who looks a lot like Father Karis from The Exorcist in that picture Mm -hmm. on the wall, by the way, which is funny. And you see his bedroom and he has like the Ferris Fawcett poster and Al Pacino and Serpico and Bruce Lee is on the wall and you see him dancing in his bedroom and getting ready to go out that night. Also, let me tell you, and he puts on the Italian horn. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What a man. (laughs)
0: Yeah, he's just a normal guy and no matter what he does, it's that realization that is so sad. And later when he's at the diner with Stephanie, he's hitting on her and she just she says it like it is. She says to him, "You're a cliché, you're a nobody on your way to no place." And he kind of jokes it off, but that's him. That's why in the sequel he can't make it on Broadway is cuz maybe he's moved to Manhattan, but He's struggling so much inside with who he is and doesn't Mm. really realize that yet.
1: Yeah, and the interesting thing about Stephanie is that you can tell through. I think the script actually is strongest in the scenes earlier on in the movie between Stephanie and Tony, where she just keeps name dropping and she's talking about her life in the city and how she has this job and oh, do you know who Lawrence Olivier is and. We watched Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. You know, she's, she is such a name dropper. And she thinks it gives her this advantage over him or this upper hand. But in reality, when we start to learn more about her life, she doesn't necessarily have it made either, right? She's mm-hmm. still trying to climb as well. And just because she's a little further ahead of him, a lot of what she's doing and what she's saying is really performative. And it shows, I think, another side of that aspirational New York it's very real, I think, for her character and what, how someone like her would behave around someone like Tony.
0: Yeah, I do like her character the most in the movie, just for how real she is with him. And she really only succumbs to his persistence once he starts to open up a little bit. So I think even though she's still climbing, she's able to show us like a real depiction of this person trying to make it in Manhattan.
1: I have to ask, though, do you think she's a good dancer?
0: She would never make it as a ballet dancer. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's more of a hobby. And this plays into the ending because I Mm -hmm. don't think in any world they should have won that competition.
1: Their dance together is so dull to me. It is such a nothing performance for a dance competition. And I know that's part of the point, I think, is that You know, earlier in the movie, what I love, my favorite scene in the entire movie is when we see John Travolta go out on the dance floor and dance alone. Mm -hmm. Like, he is by himself. It is so amazing. I love watching it. And I feel like if you want to, I don't know, maybe if you are entirely sold on watching the movie or returning to it, just watch that scene. It is the best in the opening. I think those are the best parts of the movie. And just seeing him out on that dance floor you understand just the hold that that has on him and how that is his talent that's what he's really good at and that at this club the 2001 odyssey which is a hilarious Mm -hmm. name also considering uh the famous film 2001 a space odyssey of course but that at this place like he is he's the one he's in charge he's the best dancer he gets the most attention and i think that when he's with stephanie it's for me, at least, it's not the same. I would rather see him dancing alone. And the ending itself, I struggle with because I just have a hard time. I understand what they're trying to do and the comments that they're trying to make around racism that exists and guilt that Tony has and how he sees that that the entire dance competition was unfair and that they shouldn't have won. I have a hard time believing that someone who wanted a four dollar raise earlier in the movie would give all that money away
0: well and he doesn't even want the four dollars right he's fine with 150 i don't think money really means anything because he just spends it all at the disco
1: but he could go to the disco more than one night a week
0: (laughs) yeah i think when he gives the money away i am shocked inside but i understand like the meaning of that moment for the movie And who he is and Mm -hmm. giving it up because he believes that they should have won. But also it goes against everything they've done in the movie. Like I mentioned, like the racism and what he's calling all of these other people. But then he's like, oh, you should have had it. This institution is rigged and, you know, I'm not going to support it. And gives them the money and they're very confused. They were the better dancers. And the people dancing after them, too, absolutely should have won. But the dancing to me is also the best part like watching him especially in the beginning when he's in those like high-waisted bell bottoms and just seeing him move on that dance floor it really is like watching something from another world because he just fits in it so Mm -hmm. perfectly
1: yeah he looks glorious he's that little tiny waist yeah (laughs) those pants too he's so skinny And but then I think as it goes like further into the ending, I'm just confused that then he fully tries to sexually assault Stephanie. And then at the end of the movie, she says, we'll be friends. Yeah. In what what world? (laughs) I think this movie just goes off the rails in many ways. (laughs) And I prefer personally just watching it for parts. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so successful in certain areas where it's easy then to forget the very jarring additional moments where these characters just, Oh my God, they treat some of the other people so horribly. And I understand, right. That that's, you know, that's part of their, their world and their experience. And that, you know, it's a portrayal of people who can behave horribly, but that moment in the movie is just crazy and rings pretty false to me Mm -hmm. and his, for Tony's character I also have to ask you, because we haven't talked about Annette, the Donna Peskow character. Mm-hmm. I think she's great in this movie, Donna Peskow. Do you recognize her from anything?
0: She's so familiar. I just tried to look her up on IMDb, too, but I didn't go through her filmography. What What is it?
1: <laughs> she's the mom from Even Stevens, <laughs> among other things. Oh, but yes. that, I feel like, for our generation is yeah. where we would know her. But that character they just treat her so horribly yeah. the entire movie oh it's just so hard to watch and then like she just wants to be with tony so badly and she's so lonely like her sisters are married she's not and then when she and tony are suddenly they're in the back of a car because all of the sex in this movie happens in the back of cars <laughs> and he asks her if she's fixed oh my god i, I did roll my eyes very hard at that <laughs> And then later on, when there's that shot of her holding all the condoms, yeah, the secondhand embarrassment that I feel right now is just <laughs> through the roof. <laughs> like, I was like, I thought, I cannot watch her. I feel yeah. so sorry for her.
0: Yeah, it, another devastating character where from the first moment we meet her and the way that Tony turns and looks at her at the table at the disco, you just mm-hmm. know it's never going to happen. And she never understands that. So finally, in the end, when his friend like hits him and says, you don't want her. Why do you keep acting like it? It's like, finally, Mm -hmm. someone's telling him like it is. And yeah, yeah, I feel like there are a lot of people who need that.
1: Yeah, I, I do. I do like that this movie tries to tackle really like complex sort of seedy characters who make bad decisions and who struggle with that and who are kind of finding their own identities in this place where they live. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that sometimes is better in theory than in execution. But I think that some of the scenes in the movie, again, are really strong, but primarily the dancing. I come to this movie specifically for the Bee Gees, the disco and to see John Travolta dance.
0: Absolutely. This movie, I would say, doesn't work without the soundtrack.
1: Not at all. Yeah, I completely agree. So do you think that anything was snubbed?
0: Just continuing on the soundtrack conversation, I don't know what was original and made for this movie, but How Deep Is Your Love was nominated at the Globe, so obviously that was. Why was none of the soundtrack nominated?
1: It is egregious. I think that when it comes to original song, these are some of the worst snubs maybe ever in that category. When you think about just how... I know the word iconic is overused, but in this case, these songs actually are iconic. How they were not included in the category, the nominees that we had for original song that year were You Light Up My Life, which won Candle on the Water from Pete's Dragon. The Slipper and the Rose Waltz from The Slipper and the Rose, The Story of Cinderella. Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me. And Someone's Waiting for You from The Rescuers. Oh, I mean, I, do I like love that the Rescuers. inclusion, and <laughs> but still. Nobody Does It Better is my favorite Bond song.
0: Okay.
1: Love Carly Simon. I don't think most people know that Stayin' Alive is an original song for a film. Not in our generation, no. I don't think. I mean, I think if you didn't grow up with this movie... You know that it's in the movie, but you don't necessarily know that it was written for the film. Like all of those songs, more than a woman, they're all for this film.
0: It should fill up this category. It's just, yeah. that's how I feel. Okay. It it needed five other Oscar nominations. I probably would have nominated Donna Peskow too. I think she's great. The
1: Turning Point and Julia, those two films really dominated the 1977 Oscars. But yeah, I completely agree with you. I think if we're thinking snubs, original songs, absolutely. And you could make a case for Donna Pescal, of course. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
1: So as much as I love John Travolta, and I was so excited that he was nominated for this movie, I think it's a perfect lone nomination. And he also would have been my winner in the category. That was the year that Richard Dreyfuss won for The Goodbye Girl. I would have gone with original song and I think when I'm thinking of songs from the movie and how they're used in the film I would have gone with staying alive because I think that how it's used as the introduction to Tony and how he's just walking along strutting with that paint can it is the perfect introduction to the character the perfect use of a song in a film to like bring back the disco era and yeah I think it's I think it's perfect. And considering its placement really in culture now, and how popular mm-hmm. it is, and how it's one of the most iconic songs from the time, yeah, I would pick that one. What about you?
0: I would also do song. I would probably pick "Staying Alive, but I do really like How Deep Is Your Love and how that plays in the movie. Also More Than A Woman. Mm-hmm. It's just all the songs, they fit the vibe, too, in their specific scenes. I think it does a great job of really modulating the vibes of the characters and what they're going through and also being fun and playing in a disco club. I think it's a great mix.
1: I completely agree. So that was our episode on New York movies, Rosemary's Baby and Saturday Night Fever. Go watch both of these if you haven't yet. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be previewing one of our After Dark Patreon episodes. On that episode, we will be talking about Mean Streets and The King of Comedy. So you guys voted and chose those two movies. The theme is Martin Scorsese movies that did not receive any Oscar nominations. And so I'm excited to review those. Mean Streets turns 50 this year, and The King of Comedy is one of my all-time favorite Marty films and it'll get us ready for Killers of the Flower Moon coming later in October
0: yeah we have a whole month of Marty planned I'm excited and then we'll also get to do some horror continuing off of Rosemary's Baby
1: Mm -hmm. again
0: more fun on After Dark but yeah thank you all for listening feel free to rate review and follow you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod you can also find bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar
1: Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.